Ephesians 4, verse 11 and 12 says, the, the office of the pastor, teacher, prophet, evangelist, the apostles for the equipping the words for the saints, the ministry of the work of the saints, which means my job, my job is to equip you for what God's got you to do. Amen? I can't do my job if there's resistance. If I keep, if I keep blocking Brenda, she can't do what she's trying to do. Amen? I have found this is the way it is. When I, whenever I, someone preaches, wherever church I go to, whatever church I'm sitting, whether I'm preaching or receiving, I have found, the scripture is true, you receive the one who sent, you receive the one who sent, amen? Jesus withdrew from places that there was hardness of heart. He withdrew. I, I just assume get the word, because here's the cool thing. I, I always get a double portion of it. I'm not talking about anointing, a double portion where it convicts my own heart. So if nothing else, say, Holy Spirit, keep coming, because he needs to change. But in the byproduct of that is that lives that we touch will be different. Amen? There's a difference when God changes and transforms our lives. I believe that God's been preparing us. I believe God's been dealing with stuff. And I'm going to tell you the end result of where we're heading. When we get done with this, we're going to spend time recommitting our life to the Lord through communion. Jesus Christ paid an ultimate sacrifice of purchasing us, and there was a reason he did that. He came in. Paul put it this way. I pressed in to apprehend that for which I've been apprehended for. There's a reason you've been apprehended. I, was, I made a decision I was not going to serve God. At 20, years, zero, 20, 21 years of life, I had made a decision I wasn't going to serve God, follow God, and want nothing to do with God. But Jesus Christ said, let me tell you, I've got a different purpose for your life. And the preeminent understanding is him being Lord, not my life. Him being king made a difference in my life. Today we're going to look at the, the, the authority of the king. We've been doing a series about reestablishing our right priorities. Priorities are not what we say they are. Give me, your, give me a, uh, the videotape of your life from yesterday, and I will tell you what your priorities are. I'll give you my DVD from how I spent yesterday, and you will tell me what my priorities are. They're not what we intend to do. Well, I really meant to go and spend time with my kids yesterday. It wasn't a priority for me if I didn't spend time with my kids. We talk about Jesus Christ being priority number one in our lives. But the truth and the fact of the matter is he is not. But here's the cool thing. Whenever God points something else, because he's just kind of reestablishing, restoring it. His heart, his intention is for us to be in that place. And it's not just in a bowing down, in a you're God and I'm, I'm this weak vessel. It's in a position of understanding if he's the king. If the Union Jack is flying over your country, if the American flag is over your country, there's an understanding of who is in control, who's going to take care of you, who's going to provide for you, who's going to defend you, who's going to protect you. When we have that establishment, you just kind of walk a little bit different. There's a different mentality. When I spent some time at a military base this summer, as my son Jonathan was graduating uh, in the military, I remember just that sense of realizing I was in a safe place. That's the kingship of Jesus Christ in our life. It's more than just a proclamation. It's more than us cowering on the floor. Uh, you know, it's the picture of, of Esther where the king went in there with the scepter and he touched her and says, come on in. There, there's no condemnation, no shame. And some of you haven't been coming boldly into the throne room as the writer of Hebrews says that we're supposed to come boldly in the throne room in your moment of need and grace that you find mercy. You've held back. We're going to change that. I think God wants to reestablish some things. I know God wants to. Turn to Mark 11. If 
Verse 27, then they came to Jerusalem. And he was walking in the temple, Jesus, and the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you authority to do these things? The basic gist of the story is that in um, a few verses back, verses 15 and 19, Jesus walked in the temple. It's the second time he did this in his ministry. He was tired of seeing the tables out there. He was tired of seeing people ripping off people. He was tired of people trying to come to God and the Pharisees and the leaders and the temple people trying to make it harder for them just to worship God. And in this righteous anger, he throws the tables and throws them over and disperses all this mess. And the authorities come up and said, we got a question for you. What authority gave you permission, gave you the right? Who said you could do that? And Jesus answered and said, I'll ask you one question. And then you answer me. And then I'll tell you what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or was it from men? Answer me. And they reasoned among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he'll say, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, they will fear the people, for all counted John to have been a prophet indeed. So they answered and said to Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said, neither did I tell you what authority I do these things. And then he began to speak to them in parables. Now Matthew records that he gave, uh, he gave three parables. Luke and Mark record that he just gave two. And this is the one that the, the three of them all agree on that he gave. Then he began to speak in parables. And a man planted a vineyard and set a head around it and dug a place for the wine vat and built a tower and leased it to vine dressers. And they went to a far country. Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit from the vineyard and the vine dressers. And they took him and they beat him and they sent him away empty handed. Again, he sent another servant, and at him they threw stones, and they wounded him in the head, and they sent him away shamefully treated. And again, he sent another, and they killed him, and many others beating some and killing some. Therefore, still having one son, his beloved son, he sent him, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine dressers said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and take the inheritance, and it will be ours. And they took him, and they killed him, and they cast him out of the vineyard. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He'll come down and destroy the vine dressers. And he'll give his vineyard to another. Have you not read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And it was marvelous in our eyes. And they sought to lay hold of him. But they feared the multitude for they know he had spoken this parable against them. So they left him and they went away. Now at first glance, we always picture and and put the focus on the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the leaders of the temple as being wrong people for doing this. Now, let me tell you this. If all of a sudden, uh, the life group, Ben's got the table set out and they're doing fundraising for something, and Cherry's got a booth out there and she's trying to talk about women's life, and Rich Hansen, is, God's put something in his heart to raise money for something, so he's selling pastries out there. But it's all ordained by Pastor Jim to do this. Someone walks in off the street and starts flipping tables. I would hope that the elders and the leadership go up to that person and said, who told you you could knock these tables over? So the Pharisees had an authority and a responsibility to ask Jesus why he was doing that. And we need to establish that. Because Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were godly Pharisees, leaders of the temple, that at some point God changed their heart and they followed Jesus. So not every time they talk about the Pharisees is wrong. So by, by their very nature, their very responsibility, they had an authority to do that, to go to Jesus and say, who are you and who said you could do this? That wasn't the issue. 
Because what Jesus did is he didn't just go over there and said, oh, by the way, Ben, you shouldn't be selling it. That looks wrong. He violently took a whip and he flipped over tables and he cleared the house. There was an anger behind his, behind his wrath, a righteous, God-fearing anger behind it. It was very common for the rabbis of those days to be asked the hard question. Now, you know, Jesus doesn't run from the questions. It was right to ask them these questions. So that can't be what was going on in the story. Their goal, and this is what Jesus saw, their goal was not because they were concerned that somebody was selling something in the temple wrong and, and, and Jesus came and upset it. Their goal was not to go to Jesus and to try to make and change him and change his, his focus for what he was doing and, and sit down and dialogue and say, let's talk about this. Their goal was strictly driven on jealousy. They saw that the people were listening. They saw that God was using them. And when Jesus did that, it cut them to the heart and they realized they were wrong for what they were doing. And out of jealousy and anger, so Jesus goes up to them, and he doesn't run from their authority, but says, all right, I got a question for you. When John came, who gave him authority? And if you can answer that question, I'll answer you and explain who my authority. It's right that we ask Jesus what authority he has. But it's also equally right that we listen to the answer. What right do you have, God, to tell me what to do? It's okay to ask the questions, but you better listen to the answer. Because God wants to explain his authority and show his authority. And when we see it, I think it's easier for us to submit to this. But Jesus knew the heart of these men who were challenging him was not driven by a godly concern for the people in the temple. It was purely out of jealousy and out of judgment. Jesus looked at their hearts, he spoke to them, and they were embarrassed and they pulled back. Jesus didn't mince his words when he talked to these guys because their hearts were exposed. Listen to this. Matthew 23, 13 and 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for neither you go in nor do you allow other people to go in. Woe to you, Pharisees, you hypocrites! You devour widows' houses and you make pretense of long prayers. Therefore, you receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel the land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he's one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are for yourself. Jesus refused to answer their questions simply because their heart motivation was wrong. You want to understand the authority of Jesus Christ, we've got to get our hearts right. And I think that's what God wants to do here today, is deal with stuff inside of our hearts. God never owes any of us an answer and an explanation for his ways. He's God all by himself. The leaders were confounded and forced to make a retreat. I was even impressed how Jesus was doing the very thing he told the disciples where he says when, you, when they drag you before the Sanhedrins, don't worry about what you're going to say. The Holy Spirit will tell you what to say. Do you notice he used great wisdom in that answer? I, I'm, I'm always amazed by the answers that God gave Jesus Christ as he stood there with these profound answers. There's our hope when someone challenges us to our authority as we walk out the things and do the things that God's told us to do. Jesus used this opportunity to explain to these leaders, who he was and what he did. The parable is really simple, and I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it because one of the things I'm really concerned about is when Jesus tells a story and then we get in there and explain what Jesus said. I'd rather have the Holy Spirit, as we read it individually in our, in our prayer closets, for the Holy Spirit to dig it back up and speak to us because we hear in part and prophesy in part. I've heard people retell stories of what Jesus taught, and I'm just amazed at the theology that comes out of there. Because I don't see it. But it fit really good to explain why we need to have blue carpeting in the, in the fellowship hall. You know what I'm talking about? 
So let's let this story stand in itself. It's a real simple story. The vine dresser, the, the owner of the, vine, the vineyard, that's the Heavenly Father. The son is Jesus. The vineyard is Israel. The vine dressers are the workers. And the servants are the prophets of the Old Testament. Everyone got that? It's a very simple story. He is retelling what has happened historically since God chose to take these people. He's saying to the leaders, this is what you guys have done to me. You've rejected me. The stone that has been rejected will become the cornerstone. He prophetically said, and this is what you're going to do to me. When I come to you, you're going to kill me. He was prophetically saying, you want to know what authority it is? I will recant the entire history of Israel in a very short parable, and then I'm going to tell you what's going to happen to me. But then I'm going to tell you what's going to happen to me after you kill me. I will become the cornerstone of what God's doing because he's going to take the vineyard out of your position and he's going to give it to someone else. All throughout the Old Testament, God tells stories after stories of sending prophets to Israel. That's the thing that I just love about God's mercy, is that if we miss it, he'll send somebody else in to get it to us. He doesn't just say, well, well, well Carol, I, I told you once that, that that should be good enough. He keeps sending in people. And, and if we put our resistance up, he finds another way. I love the Psalms. They do a wonderful job of watching God transform a person who doesn't understand where God is at to a man who's worshiping or a woman who's worshiping God. That's what he wants to do in our lives. So he sent the prophets to the people. I'm just going to breeze through these. If you miss them, I promise I'll post my notes because I tend to go a little bit fast. Second Chronicles 36, he tells a story where he's talking to the people. Moreover, the leaders and the priests transgress more and more according to the abomination of the nation. This is what's going through the heart of Jesus as he's doing. He's remembering that for thousands of years he has sent his prophets with a specific purpose, which was to turn the hearts of the people back to God, and they rejected him. This is what's going on in Jesus' heart. I'm amazed at the, the, the fortitude of the Holy Spirit to hold back the righteous wrath that he could have blasted them with. But instead he says, you tell me, John the Baptist was that. He transcended and said, I'm cutting grace, grace, grace. Where sin abounds, grace does much more. Second Chronicles 36, 14. They did according to the abomination and they defiled the house of God, which was consecrated in Jerusalem. And the Lord God, their father, sent warnings to them by messengers, rising up early and sending them because he had compassion on his people in this dwelling place. But they mocked the servants of God and they despised his words and they scoffed at the prophets until the wrath of God arose against the people and there was no remedy. Hosea 9:10. I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as first fruits and the figs of its season. But they went to Baal Peor and they separated themselves to do shame and they became an abomination to the things they loved. Hosea 10, verses 1 to 3. It says, Israel empties his vines. He brings forth fruit for himself. Now, that's not he, God. That's he, Israel. They did all this stuff for themselves, not for God. According to the multitudes of his fruit, not God's, but their own, they increased their altar. Their hearts was divided, verse 2. And they're guilty. God's going to come in and break down their altars. He's going to ruin their pillars. For now they say, we have no king because we did not fear the Lord. As for a king, what would he do for us? Nehemiah 9, 26 to 30. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and they rebelled against you. They cast their law and they killed your prophets who prophesied against them to turn them back to you. Therefore, you delivered them into the hands of their enemies who oppressed them. And in time, they cried out to you. And when they cried out to you, you heard them according to your abundant mercy. You sent in deliverers who saved them from the hands of the enemies. But after they had rest, 
They did evil again before you, and you allowed them once again to be in the hand of their enemies so, they had, so that you had no dominion over them. Yet, when they returned, they cried to you, and once again you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercy, and you testified against them that you might bring them back. But they acted proudly. They did not heed your commandments, but sinned against your judgment. And they shrugged their shoulders and they stiffened their necks and they would not hear. Yet for many years you have patience with them and testified by your spirit and your prophets, but they would not listen. So you gave them into the hands of the people. So what do we do with this scripture? Tomorrow morning we go to real jobs, real cities, real people. What does this got to do with us? This is a, a story about something that took place over 2,000 years ago of Jesus confronting Israel saying, I've had enough of this. I've had enough of how you've treated the prophets that have come to you. I've had enough of how you've rejected me. What has this got to do to my life as tomorrow morning I go to a real job in a real city, in a real home, or this afternoon when I sit in front of the TV and watch football, or I come back tonight for alpha? What has this story got to do with us? I'm glad you asked. We're not going to talk about the Pharisees that were standing there that day. We're not going to talk about Israel 4,000 years ago. We're going to talk about us. Because in this story, he says, I'm going to take the vineyard and give it to someone else. That's us. That's the church. And this is where I think God is pointing his, his sword at us today. Mark 12, verse 9. The owner will come and give the vineyard to another. Let me tell you this. God has not given up on Israel. Read Romans 11. Paul is so clear to understand that God has not given up on Israel. He's not turned his back. He's got a covenant. In fact, the, the world does not revolve around the United States. As much as I love the United States, the world revolves around Israel. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. God has still got his hand on Israel. We are the vine that is grafted into the original vine. God has not surrendered Israel. But he's turned his back and said, I'm not letting you work in the vineyard. I'm giving it to someone else. That's us, the church. So if we've got the vineyard, guess what this passage tells us? He's going to do a little inspection. And just like he came to Israel, he's going to come to us. And he's going to send in other prophets. And he's going to send out, and this is what scares me about this story, is it could be a prophetic statement of what we have done, and I think it has for the last 2,000 years. We've continued to kill the prophets and reject them. And it says, ultimately, we can push away Jesus. You say, well, where, where's that in the New Testament? What, what do you think they follow the Antichrist? Because they've no longer understood who the true Christ is, who the true king is. Why do you think they bow down before some foreign god? If the people who follow Jesus could do it, why do you think we can't? You say, well, boy, I tell you, if I was standing there that day, I would have said, Jesus, whew, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to follow you the rest of my life. Really? I have counseled enough people over the years to understand how we live our lives. I've watched you fall apart, and it's like this panic sets in. I appreciate so much Pastor Jim's response on Monday when we came and looked at the point. He says, we live in a fallen world with fallen people, but God is bigger than this. That, that, that's the focus of it. That's the understanding of saying there's good fruit in this vineyard. But here's the problem I've seen as I've listened to your hearts and I've listened to my hearts and I've watched our stories is the lordship of Jesus Christ can't be seen in every area of our lives. We don't have fruit growing everywhere. And this whole thing about reestablishing priorities and restoring our position and coming back to us, this is what I really love about this, is this is a cool thing because God is saying it's wrong, but I'm coming to fix it. And you can respond one of two ways. You either stick your thumbs in your ears like they did when they were stoning Stephen and pick up rocks and kill the prophet who was speaking to them. 
Or you can sit there and say, oh, God, what must we do to be saved? Two responses recorded in the book of Acts. The cool thing is that when God comes, this is the part I love it, when he comes to inspect us, the question never changes. And the question is, what have you done with my vineyard? What, what have you done with it? I'm coming into the thing and looking at it. So my question is real simple today. A whole, there's not a ton of questions, and we're going to move into a time of, of communion and a time of worship again, because we're going to get this stuff right if you choose to. There's no Vikings game on. Isn't that cool? I got that to cancel. I asked them to have a bye week, because the important one's not till Anyway. Wait, Dallas won. Yeah, not till you played Dallas. <laughs> or the Packers, Michelle. I get some simple questions. I'll give you a little oxygen there because we're going to get hot and heavy here for a minute. And I want to make sure, because here's the thing I've learned. When I used to out and evangelize in the streets or anywhere in churches, I found that if I can talk someone into it, someone else can talk you out of it. We want the Holy Spirit to convict and change. We want him, because when he changes and challenges us, we walk away from things. At least that's been my experience. If I'm doing because mom says it's wrong, I I will find a way around what mom says is wrong. So, Holy Spirit, as we go through these questions, I'm asking that you would continue to poke and probe, continue to change and challenge. Challenge us, Lord, for what you want to do in Jesus' name. So where are the areas that are still not under the authority of Jesus Christ in your life? Realistically, where you've justified, where you've gone and looked to our legislative system and said they've now made it legal, so it's fine. Jesus refuses to justify his authority in your life. He never owes man an explanation of his ways. He's God all by himself. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. There are no lawn signs that can be placed out saying God's running for election. You say, well, why would I even think that? Really? I've heard the prayers of you. I've heard the heart cries of you. How could God do it? If he's such a loving God, how could he do it? God couldn't possibly take someone that young. Really? He's God. He's God and he's God all by himself. And there's times where I have to respond like Job and say, though you slay me, I will still yet praise you. You are God. They, the, the, the fallen world we live in, it just, the damnation of it seems to try to push out the blessing of the Lord. But he's God, and he's God all by himself, and he doesn't need you, and he's secure in the solitude of himself. He's not running up for election. So where, God, are the areas in my life that are still not submitted to you where I have justified? You say, well, wait a minute. It, it can't possibly be true, really. I preached a similar message over in Minneapolis a few years ago. And I, just what I appreciate about Pastor Sam is he came over with tears running down his face. He says, right there in the service, God convicted me of something. And I said, Lord, I want to deal with that. And he says, You're, then, then I'm not going on. I so much appreciate when the Spirit of God comes and takes our hearts and says, I want to show you some areas you're still not submitted to my Lordship. So where are the areas that we still challenge his authority? Jesus has all authority. It's not just an intellectual thing. He has all authority. So when all of a sudden $4,000 gets ripped off the church, you say, well, you're in charge. As I'm panicking, trying to get through the traffic this morning, Kathy says, he's still in charge. And we're trying to figure out what to do with this situation. That He's still in charge. He's still in charge. He's still the Lord. He has all authority. All authority has to belong to Jesus. All allegiance has to belong to Jesus. But here's the kicker. Then we've got to act like he has authority in every area of our life. I told God I didn't want to go into ministry. I told God I didn't want to preach. I told God I didn't want to do mission work. I had no desire to. I had my whole career all laid out. I was going to art school. I was going to get my degree in art. I had the woman I was going to marry. It wasn't Kathy. I had it all figured out. But if I'm going to submit to the authority of Jesus Christ and I've got to go and say, here's an area, Lord, 
where it's still not under your rule or reign because every time it comes up, I say I can justify my sin and sin is anything that separates us from God. I don't know how you people from other nations live in this place. For all of our freedoms, all we do is use our freedoms to justify our immorality. Then we try to sell it to the rest of the world. I don't understand it. This nation, what's pathetic about it for me is that it's often Christians who are doing and justifying their immorality and justifying their wickedness and justifying their broken lives. I'm not talking about perfection. We are saved by grace and grace alone. I'm talking about where we justify what we do. Well, you know, I really should forgive that person, but I can justify this little bit of gossip, this little bit of slander, this little bit of underforgiveness because of actually what they said. That's not what the Word of God says. Forgive as you've been forgiven. Don't hold it back. If you have anything against your brother, when you don't, don't come to the altar. Go deal with it. We justify. Don't worry about anything, he says. Take upon my yoke. It's easy. We, we justify. Well, everyone worries. What? No, we don't. We have a king who's in charge and he's supreme. Well, everyone has to go through financial hardships. Why do they have to go through financial hardships? Why can't you go through a, a situation where you see the hand of the Lord providing for you as you go through them? Why can't you start believing God and giving you exceedingly abundantly above all you can ask for above imagine? I'm not talking about just financial provision. I'm talking about in every situation. I was so grateful Peggy shared at the funeral. I don't know if I could do that. But I saw the grace of God working and flowing to you to bring life because the callings and giftings in your life to continue to pray for men and continue to motivate and encourage women and do is not without repentance. You know my response when I saw that? I said, Wow, Lord, I didn't know she was going to take that class. It must be part of what the leading of the Lord is in her life. That's how someone who has a kingship mentality understands life. Every time we go through the situations, the mentality we have is that, Jesus, you're in charge of my life, and I've got to trust that you're taking me through this. Instead of, how dare you, God? Oh, I'd never say that. We all have. We all have. Oh, that can't be God. Why can't that be God? Oh, that has to be God. How do you know that was God? He's in charge. We're so used to now second-guessing everything Obama does. And he didn't vote for him. He's still the president. We are still exhorted in 2 Timothy to pray for those who are in leadership. Kings and priests, that we might live pleasable life. That's what it says. We're supposed to, well, I didn't vote for Obama, so I don't have to pray for him. Okay? Really honest, this is where I'm coming from with this thing. I was preaching in a church about three weeks ago. We're in the pre-prayer service. They are praying for the removal of Obama for office. Pre-prayer service. Where was the hearts, God, that you changed my heart for the word that's coming out? Where was the prayers for God that for the lost who don't know you, that their hearts would be opened up? Where was the thing about God, I just want to get the equipping so I can go out and know that I'm being sent to call to all nations? My heart was broken and grieved as we sat in that prayer room, and I thought, listen to this, this is Christians. And usually the people that are in the prayer room tend to be the more mature ones. This is the junk I hear coming out of people's mouths. Well-meaning, and I think God is saying, I'm going to clean that stuff up. I'm going to come in and prune off that stuff that's no good, the stuff that's, and we're going to deal with it. Take the rose hips off so the new ones can come. The excitement, the anticipation of saying, oh, God, you're right, this has been a big weight. I don't need to carry this thing. Every time the wind blows, it tends to kind of, I just get rid of this stuff in my life, Lord. I don't want to question your authority. I don't understand it. We don't have to understand it. He's not afraid of the hard questions. It says, come boldly without circumlocution, which is words like Pastor Jim likes to use. It just means the unnecessary use of large words. That's what it says in the book of Hebrew. That's what it says in the Hebrew and the Greek. Don't come into the prayer room with, with big, fancy words. Come in and say, oh, God, I don't understand. He has all authority. Number three, we're appointed to bear fruit. Where are the places that you won't let the fruit inspectors in? 
We all have them. We all, we're all ashamed of them. I hope they don't talk about that message today. I hope they don't go into that area because we know that it's not really grow of fruit. How many here know you cannot produce fruit if you're part of the vine? Do you understand? I'm the vine, you're the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. We can't do anything to produce fruit. So could you just chill? Let them inspect us and say, you know, I don't understand. There's an area of your life that's not growing fruit, but I'm going to work on that. Can I work on you? I'm going to put a little fertilizer. I'm going to do a little truning. Instead, what we do is say, no, God, it's fruit. I've got to produce fruit. So I am, you know, it's like it doesn't work that way. Let the king, the vine dresser, come into your life and start inspecting and start working. Where are the places that you won't let those inspectors in? Where are the places in your life where you won't let Jesus in? What's the difference? The difference is sometimes who God uses are these unlikely candidates in your life. It's your mother, it's your father, it's your pastor, it's your teacher, it's your brother, it's your sister, it's the radio, it's the television, it's the song, it's the worship thing, it's the book that somebody says, you ought to read this book. Where are the places we don't let God come into those areas? Instead of saying, thank you, (laughs) a book on anger, I really appreciate you, brother. Bless you for giving me that book. You're the 10th book this week that somebody has given to me. You know, when I finally got off the drugs and alcohol, I had three different people come to my door and individually and independently of each other say, are you struggling with drinking? And I was in a church where it was acceptable to drink. This is many years ago, 30 years ago. And I said, uh, you know, you're the third person that came to my door today. I'm going to receive this as all the Lord wants to deal with this. Could we pray? And I was miraculously delivered from alcohol. When we receive the inspectors that come into our life, not talking about ones coming in there that have this, I have this gift of inspecting fruit. and I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about sometimes it's just sitting here on Sunday mornings. Sometimes it's just listening to Praise FM or KTIS or KNOF and the, and the minister's preaching on there and we go and say, oh, I don't need to hear that. Lord, what are you saying to that? You're right, Lord. I don't have fruit and I don't know why I don't have fruit. Because when God does it, he doesn't pull your clothes off metaphorically and expose your nakedness. He comes in there secretly and he kind of covers you up with his grace. And he does pruning. And that's a good thing. So where are the areas? Where are the places in your life where you put Jesus in? Not only do you not let him in, but you keep pushing him away. I keep sending the prophets into you and you keep stoning him. You keep rejecting him. And some of them you even killed. And this time I'm coming. Because if you learn to push away the prophetic people in your life and the prophecies working through the word of God or however else he sends it, eventually you say to Jesus, you can't. How many here have ever questioned God and said, how dare you, besides me? I'm not the only one. And I think Jesus is saying, I want to deal with that, so you don't do that. Can I tell you where I'm at spiritually? Metaphorically, spiritually, this is the way I see it. God's really working my life, and you really brought it out when you preached last time, Ben. I see Jesus sitting with me and saying, do you realize I'm really with you? I'm really for you. I'm going through this with you. I think the best for you. I'm not backing off for you. And I want you to get that. I want you to so ground this. For the last two years, it's that whole, do you understand that God is for you? And every time I do that, there's a confidence and a hope and a trust that, man, now you're crazy to take us through this kind of journey, Jesus. But as long as you're going through there with me, I can handle this. And then he crops up another new situation. But I don't want to not let him in those areas. I want to say, you're king, you're Lord, come on. See, this is the cool thing. If Obama was to call you up and say, I want to come to your house and deal with some situation, I understand you're struggling, how many here would reject it? I'd let him in. I'd say, you think you can fix it? I'm, I'm serious about that because if he's coming, he's got all authority of the military to come and make sure that whatever is wrong is wrong. The king is coming with a full authority, banners waving. Where are the areas you won't let him? Jesus comes into our life to clear out areas of fruitlessness. Where are the areas that you have fruitlessness? 
the thing I've discovered about God, and this is the part that's always hard, he may remove things from your life forcefully. The kingdom of heaven suffers, heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it before us, what Jesus said. Jesus sometimes does things dramatically and powerfully, and they seem so wrong, but he's God, and he knows what he's doing. Oh, would it be kind of nice if Jesus would lay us out and give us a little anesthesia sometimes, and you know, just do the whole thing, and this whole preparatory surgery and everything. Sometimes he violently takes stuff out of our life, and it hurts. We are fallen people who live in a broken world, and Jesus has redeemed us to live in this place. In the middle of it, sometimes what God does to remove fruitlessness in our life always seems to be hard, and it seems to be harsh when he does it that way. But there's got to be that point of saying, you know what? It is. Uh, one of the greatest things I heard my wife Kathy say after her dad died, she was very close to her dad. It was three years ago, very close to him. He was a very godly man. I miss him. I loved him so much. He's probably one of the few men in my, uh, my whole experience I've ever loved. The, one of the first ones. And, um, and received unconditional love. And, and it hurt her. I don't want to ever go through that again. I don't want to ever go through watching on her face when we got the phone call. I don't want to ever go through that again. And I know I will with other people, and I have. But it's like, I remember at 3 in the morning, she woke me up one time, and she says, she says, you know what? I had a dad who loved me, and he loved being with me. And he let me know that he loved me, and he loved being with me. And he was proud of me, so I had a pretty good life. So I can let it go and thank God. That's where you want to get to, right? Instead of being saying, how dare you, is where we clench those fists and we let them go and say, oh, God, here I am. I don't understand why you just abruptly removed that from my, but i got to trust you. And it's hard. And we can't do it on our own. That's why we need one another to pray for us. And we need to come to the altar when there's opportunity to say, would you pray to us? And we need to come to communion and recommit ourselves to him at times. And admit that stuff that's in there because he knows it. Better to be brutally honest and say, Lord, if I was to leave anything at the offer and reconcile with someone, it's you. I don't understand why, you're, why you did this or why you allowed that. But I want to deal with it. You know why we need to do it? Because Jesus looks at the heart. So how do you respond to the prophets that are sent into your life? How do you respond to the preachers and to the ministers? How will you respond to Jesus when he comes into your vineyard? These people killed him. How are you going to respond to him? Worship team, if you come up, please. You need to understand something. God really thinks the best of us, and he loves us. And that's what his motivation is. Can I give you a real simple definition of sin? Sin is anything that separates us from God. And God hates being away from us. Do you know that? That's what he hates sin. He hates the consequences. And the consequences, ultimately, is we don't show up and spend time with him. Why can't you show up to church? Well, because I did such and such last night. That's the time you ought to come running into it. Take the muddy shoes off as you walk in the door. But run in and say, I'm a broken vessel. I need to be restored to you. One of my favorite pictures that parallels with this passage here. Pictures of Jesus, who Jesus said, I only do what the Father does. I only say what the Father does. It comes from Luke 13, 34. Jesus was outside of Jerusalem. I don't, I don't remember exactly when this took place, whether it was before the stelling of the vineyard story or after. But Jesus got to the point, 100% man, 100% God, sitting there, and he looks at the city, the city that he loved, the city that he had favor on, the city that he kept having mercy on, that he kept ex- receiving and accepting and loving, that kept rejecting him, he sat there and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those who have sent to you, how often I wanted to gather you under my arms as the mother hen gathers her chicks, but you were not 
willing. That's what I think the word of the Lord is to this church, to this individual, to, to us as people of his. Anyone that's listening. You keep killing the prophets. And you keep stoning those who are sent. You keep rejecting and I long to gather. That's my intention. It's not to have sin on you. You say, well, how do we respond to this? Let me give you four little simple things. Jesus said, if anyone desires to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. We come to the cross of Jesus Christ every single time. There's no way around it. The cross of Jesus Christ is not a fashion statement. The cross of Jesus Christ is not a piece of jewelry to wear around your neck. The cross of Jesus Christ is not a good luck charm. It's not something magical. It is the place where Jesus Christ said, I'm paying for the sin of the world. And then he said, it is finished. And all who come to me can receive forgiveness. We come to the cross. I already came to the cross. He said this, listen to this. He who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. The cross of Jesus Christ reminds us that Jesus died. It reminds us that a real Jesus shed real human blood for our sake and paid for your sins and my sins. He's something to be adored. The cross of Jesus Christ is something we bow down before. The cross of Jesus Christ is the place, the only place we surrender our lives to. Secondly, we lay down our lives. Romans 12, 1 says, I beseech you, I beg you, I earnestly call out to you. 2 Corinthians 5 says that we are ambassadors that go God. We're playing. God said this in my heart as I was praying this week. He says, Tom, I want you to be an ambassador to me. And I want you to plead as though God was imploring you, come today, today, be reconciled to God. We come and we worship him and we surrender our life. The words in the, in the NIV says, it is our reasonable act of worship is to come and say, God, everything I've got, broken, sinful, shameful, here I am. Use me, Lord. And not hold back. Number three, we let Jesus prune us. I am the vine. You're the branches. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, I take away. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. He prunes you either way. Let him prune you. It's going to hurt. I know it hurts, but that's what surrender is all about. And every time you have surrender, you get full release. And number four, we let Jesus rule over us. We're talking about kingdom shift. We're talking about restoring right priorities. Let's pray. Hmm. Father, take us deeper into worship right now. Reestablish it, Lord. Remind us that we've found joy in you. Remind us, Lord, that, that, that when we came to you, that precious gift. Remind us, Lord, the, the things that we, we've lost as we've not allowed you to have lordship over every area of our life. Jesus, we want you to reestablish priorities in our life. We want you to shift our lives, Lord, so that they reflect your goodness and your grace and your mercy. This is not about salvation. But I'll say this to you who don't know Jesus Christ. It says real clearly that if we confess the Lord Jesus Christ and we believe that he was raised from the dead, then we'll be saved. That's the promise of scriptures for the Jew and the Gentile that all will be saved. But Father... Reestablish kingship in our lives in every area. In the name and authority of Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, 